0: You're listening to the Overfunctioning Podcast. Learning leadership concepts through life experiences. Welcome, friends, to another Overfunctioning Podcast. I'm Alex.
1: I'm John. And I'm Zach.
0: And today we are going to be talking to you about over-functioning. It's the name of our podcast, so it's probably good for us to, you know, maybe talk about what it actually is. Um and if you haven't noticed already, we ha- hopefully are sounding a lot better to you uh, than we have in the past because we have a soundboard. We've gone like full
1: scale, like... Bought a soundboard off Craigslist, we turned it on, it smoked, it smelled like peanut butter, <laughs> we were not sure it worked, and then it worked.
2: Hopefully we sound better and that was money well spent. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Um. I kind of wish we had peanut butter when it smelled like peanut butter, but other than that. Yeah. You Probably. Think, here's a question. Would you, if you had a peanut allergy, would you have gotten,
1: you know, into shock or whatever? To quell any questions from the audience, we did Open the soundboard up to make sure there was not peanut butter. Because we did buy this on Craigslist. So you do not know what these people were doing with it. and But there was no peanut butter inside. <laughs> not a drop.
0: It was good. It was good. So um, just to recap, actually. So I had an interview with Mark Treen. And he talked a lot about finding your why, your overall vision. How do you have a collective vision for a system or a company, and so from my interactions with Mark and from the interview with him, he talked he talks a lot about meeting one-on-one with students and really trying to connect in a way that helps students, and not only students but parents, understand um, in some ways their purpose, but also trying to get behind, like, what is the root of what's actually going on when it comes to these different issues they may be having, and so... Um, that's the one thing that I really appreciate appreciate about Mark and he's talked to me several times about he'll have a student come into his office and he'll sit next to the student and I think there's something to be said about that I think a lot of times we go and talk to somebody and especially somebody who is a one-up relationship uh, and they sit behind the desk and it's kind of awkward right and Mm -hmm. so he comes around the desk and he sits next to them and so Uh, He talked a lot about that, and um, really, he knows a lot about this Bowen systems theory as well, and so, and I think you could probably tell that 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 came through in his interview, Um, and so, yeah, just a really good interview with him.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'll just add, I I think uh, leaders in any system, especially in a highly anxious situation, so by the time something gets to an assistant principal's, um, gets to their office, it, it's serious and anxiety can be a bit higher. And so one of the roles of a leader is to be able to turn the anxiety down and make people or help make people less anxious. I think sitting next to someone is an example of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And even in his interaction with parents, it's trying to calm the system down to allow people to be more thoughtful. So I think that's certainly something I saw from that, uh, that podcast for sure.
1: Another thing that I really appreciated is he talked about um, emotionally reactive parents. And we're going to jump in and talk about uh, last week's podcast in a little sure. bit, which was on reactivity. But he mentioned, and I really appreciated talking about. Um, The parents who come in just emotionally charged, and he said something along the lines of, I'm not going to look at that parent and dismiss them because of how reactive they're being, how emotionally charged they are, because they're coming in there thinking, this is the best thing I can do for my child, Mm -hmm. and he's never going to dismiss that. And I thought that was very interesting, and I wish he had talked more about how he decharged that situation emotionally, because that's that's a very difficult thing to do with reactivity, but I just – Really appreciated the way that viewing the parents' motivating factors, right? The way their relationship with the child and that emotional care is really what drove them to coming into his office and just raging at him.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just the, and he uses this word, these words more than I do. He'll say, step down transformer. And that has been, I don't know, if you said that to him, John, but like, I'll hear that every once in a while, and he says it more than anybody I actually <laughs> think I know. Um, but he uses that a lot, and that's what he's doing with these parents. And so,
2: yeah, that term actually comes from the Resilient Leadership book, where uh, I think it, I originally heard it from Ed Friedman, who is one of the leadership uh, individuals that we read a lot of Ed stuff. But talks about that step down transformer that something comes in at, you know. I don't know what voltage is. What is voltage? 180? That's 180 degrees. What's voltage? 220 and 110. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> Something comes in at 220, and a step-down transformer takes that 220 voltage, which would seriously hurt or kill you if you touch to down to a more manageable 110. It doesn't go away, but it's certainly reduced. And from that, people can be more thoughtful at that point.
0: Yeah, so that actually leads right into our podcast about reactivity and automatic functioning, which was our last podcast together. And so if you guys could talk about a little bit more about what we talked about last time with when it came to reactivity and automatic functioning. So what is automatic functioning?
1: So automatic functioning is, if you want to put down exactly what it's saying, right? It's what you do. It's the way you respond automatically, typically from an emotional standpoint. It's the way you're reacting emotionally when something happens.
2: Yeah. I think of our family of origin and this, uh, what we call in, in Bowen theory, the multi-generational family process that what we learn in our family and our family has learned over generations is how to respond to heightened anxiety. And we tend to react in a number of different ways. You know, the, the a, a obvious way is through fighting and through you know conflict, overt conflict. And we see evidence of that. But for most people, that costs them a lot. Um, people can't keep their jobs. Family relationships can get severed with that overt you know violence. Even, but it can look like a lot of different things. It can look like cut off where people refuse to talk to one another. It can look like accommodation and affiliation, which is always giving in to another person's viewpoint to keep the peace. And uh, I think each of us has an element of that. And it can also look like overfunctioning, is another way, another example of reactivity. Oh, we're tying. Yeah. Well. Yeah.
0: So and you also mentioned you. You actually had a fable uh, about someone you were talking to who they had a little boy yeah. who there's like a blow up in the family, and he. Basically, out of the, the anxiety that was there, he, he rushed in and like tried to hug everybody and make things yeah. better for everybody. And I thought that was interesting, just from a standpoint of I don't come from a home in which their divorce is uh, a part of, but I have noticed in the past mm-hmm. um, of people who come from a family in, in such a way um, maybe not even divorce. you know, my parents have had every, everybody's had, you would think, that a lot of people have probably had. Uh, parents who have had issues, whether that led to divorce or not, even myself, as as a uh, you know, as my parents were arguing or whatever, I wanted to piece together and get them back together, and so that's just a microcosm of like that reactivity and how it automatically gets you into okay, I need to fix this, and that's all from anxiety, which is from a podcast that we did before this one. So um, with that, I think we are ready to do overfunctioning, uh, gentlemen, and so. Before that, though, it is fable time. So you know,
2: squeeze ho, into ho, your ho.
0: Yeah, squeeze into your snuggies here. It is fable time, and I believe John, you have a fable for us, yeah.
2: Well, I can think of uh, examples of overfunctioning. I think all of us at various times can overfunction, uh, and I, an example I can think of is in the educational environment. Uh, Many parents cared very deeply for their kids, and they want their kids to do the best in school. And there's a lot of worry in families today about kids functioning and doing well. And with that worry comes a parent sometimes stepping out of their perhaps healthy role and thinking for the child and worrying for the child. So I can think of an example of a few years ago where I had a, a student... That was in my class, and he wasn't doing very well. I could tell he was bright and had the ability, but he just seriously underfunctioned. He was irresponsible. He was never disrespectful, but he just didn't do the work he was capable of doing and the work that clearly he knew he should do. And so at midterm, he had a failing grade in my class. His mom came in for a conference, and we began talking through this, and she was really, really concerned. He was a senior, and she was concerned that this class, which was a requirement to graduate, may cause him not to walk across the stage. And so as we were talking, she talked about the conflict and how they argue. She asks him about his homework. He takes off out of the house, won't do his homework. And she was clearly really stressed. And I reflected on him and my interactions with him, and he seemed pretty at ease. Um, He seemed like life was pretty good. He was having a good time and she was carrying much of the burden of his underfunctioning. And so she would email me regularly, ask me if he turned his assignments in, you know, ask me to email her with any assignments that he missed. And I told her I was not able to do that. And finally, we talked on the phone one time, and she was really, really stressed. And she says, I'm at my wits end. I don't know what to do. And I asked her for permission to speak freely. And she said yes. I don't know what I would have said if she said no. But she said yes. And I said, perhaps you need to do something different. The way I see it, you're stuck in a role, and your son's stuck in a role. Perhaps it's time to disrupt this system. And she says, well, what do you have in mind? And I said, stop emailing me. Stop calling me. As a matter of fact, stop emailing all of your son's teachers and calling them. I would encourage you to have this conversation with your son. Something like this. George, not his real name. (laughs) You know what you need to do in your classes. You're 18 years old. You're a smart guy. I have my own issues to deal with. I have my own problems to deal with. And from this day going forward, at least on this issue, I refuse to carry your burden any longer. Therefore, effective today, you and I are no longer going to talk about school and schoolwork. I'm not going to check your grades. I'm not going to ask you about your homework. This is your baby. I got my own stuff to deal with. And then walk away. Mm. That's what I encourage you to do. And she paused for a minute or so. Actually, it was seconds. But she paused and she said, I don't know if I can do that. And I said, I understand. So you have a choice. Do something different or keep doing what you're doing and keep reaping the consequences that you've told me already. Is, uh, those consequences are causing you significant anxiety and worry. You told me that you have trouble sleeping at night. This has be- become so bothersome to you. And so she emailed me several weeks later. She said, sorry about the email, but I wanted to let you know that I've decided to take your advice. I had my, the conversation with Larry, whatever his name is. Larry
0: Bob. It was it was George, but hey, nobody's counting.
2: <laughs> and uh, she said, I'm scared, but I told him that. And so I, I talked to Fred the next day at school, and I asked him hey, I I hear your mom and you had a conversation. He smiled. He said, yeah, I think you've been talking to my mom, haven't you? And I just gave him a wry smile and he walked away and I said nothing else. And he graduated, barely. Uh, But mom had to revert back to overfunctioning to get him through. Uh, She just couldn't hang on because he got worse. This is what happens when a person stops overfunctioning is the underfunctioner will double down on their underfunctioning. And most people just can't hang in there and they just bail him out and she did and he graduated and I have no idea what happened going forward but they're back in that stuck relationship and uh, it's very very difficult
0: yeah I and mean, we see that a lot as teachers to see that a lot um, even I mean even today I, I do it and I think we all do it to extent over function and under function um, I think it would be good for us to pull apart what over-functioning means and under-functioning and all that. Zach, I believe you're going to tell us what a function is. That would probably be a good sp- good starting point.
1: Uh, you commonly see, you know, you're in a math class, an algebra class, and you see that f of x equals something. You have that uh, f of x comma y equals, you know, for those multi-variable equations. And you get get all these fun, confusing things. But it it's basically um, an equation where you put an input in and you get something out, per se. That's a very low-level way to explain it, but if you put in an x, you're going to get an f of x, you're going to get some sort of answer, and you can get multi-variables in there, and you put in two different things, and as both of those two things change, right, you're going to come out with something else.
0: Okay, so the question is, is can you can you get to points where you have too many variables that you are over-functioning in a way?
1: You could almost say that they're there, let's say we we have a a linear equation and you're trying to keep it in equilibrium. Well, if you want the answer to be a certain thing, if x goes up, then y is going to come down, and if y comes up, x is going to come down. There there can't be too much or too little without some sort of compensation.
0: So there's a reciprocal account to this, and you will see that all across the board when it comes to overfunctioning and underfunctioning, and so. I think the classic example um, is this is the best example I got. Um, Maybe you go with like, I don't know, Al Bundy or like Homer Simpson or any classic 90s like dad Hmm. who went to work. Now, Homer doesn't fit this, and I don't know if these other guys did. They go to work and possibly they overfunction at work, and they come home, and the reciprocal of that is, well, I'm home, I'm going to underfunction here. And so that's like a, a little example um, of what's going on there, but it can look in a lot of different ways. And so do you guys have any examples of different ways where you can see that reciprocal account of an overfunction here and you get an underfunction here on the other side?
2: Yeah, I can think of one of the examples of over and underfunctioning that I found the most interesting is that a person can overfunction and underfunction towards self. So for example, you mentioned at work or even a hobby, something that somebody pours a lot of time into and they get out of balance. And so there are particular uh, passions or hobbies that they have that actually get put by the wayside. And so, you know, their health starts to go, they, maybe they gain weight or they let key relationships and family Kind of lie fallow as they focus more and more on a particular focus at work, and one of the aspects that Uncle Jim Jim Moyer, the author of the Resilient Leadership book, I asked him this question one time, and I said, Jim, in all the work you do with leaders, he does a lot of executive coaching with with uh, people in their forties and fifties. I say, what is one common theme you see with people that you coach that come to you for help as a leader? And he explained just that that they over function at work they 're very competent, they put a lot of time into work, and they spend many, many hours being very, very good at what they do because in our society, we reward hard work, we reward dedication with promotions and money and all of that, and you know whatever other things come with it, but there's a cost involved, and that cost is the person under functions towards self, they under function towards those important relationships and now they're stuck in that type of so underfunctioning here and the reciprocal of underfunctioning towards self i see that i just look at that and
1: there's like a compartmentalization that's happening with their life and in that example you look at work and work is definitely like it's got that red light going it's on all the time it's it's clipping if we're doing the audio metaphor and everywhere else it's just sort of like just sort of dim like not much is going on and uh you know they go back home they sit on the couch i think of an air balloon sort of situation right like at work they are the air balloon they're they're tugging along this this heavy basket filled with whatever it is but at home with the kids with the household or um just other family relationships hobbies passions they're they're hoping that someone else is going to carry them in that and that's interesting just like you're looking at the uh the mother um with her son, mm-hmm. how is that son going to do at college when he doesn't have his mom riding him to get it done? That's why moms send them off to college because they are they're stressed in some regard
0: yeah um, when it comes to overfunctioning how do you how do you navigate? And which you are overfunctioning. How do you get yourself out of a situation that's like that? Or if you're under-functioning, what does that look like to get out of that situation? And um, how's the best way to navigate that,
1: would you say? Let me jump in here. And there's another book that we reference all the time called Failure of Nerve. And John said something earlier in his fable where he talked about they just can't hold their ground. So the mom, mm. she could they double down on their under-functioning because they they want the person that's over-functioning to feel that weight so that they will actively be pulling them back up. Yeah. And it this failure of nerve, like that person who's over-functioning, has to stand their ground, and that's hard to do. And at least in that specific fable, um, how much of that do we think is resultant from an inability to allow others to struggle or fail? A large theme of res- of a failure of nerve yeah. is that. When you treat failure as something that's inherently bad, yes, flunking out of school is bad, but failing a test is not bad in the long run if it teaches them to study more in the future.
2: Yeah, I think the question that you posed and the example you gave underlies the systemic challenge, the problem of systems. So systems are different, classrooms to sports teams to workplaces to families, they all have different characteristics but one thing that systems have in common is when you try to change them you can expect resistance you can expect sabotage and so in that example of that mother or an overfunctioner the the question you ask is what steps can you take to be able to stop overfunctioning uh, the first is to expect that when you stop things will get worse and your anxiety will actually go up higher The second thing to consider is that it's really hard for a person that is in the habit of over or under-functioning or triangling or something else, when they're in that habit, it's hard for an individual to recognize that they're actually doing it. They just aren't aware. And so being able to have conversations with an individual that could be a neutral observer, that can be curious about you as a person and kind of help think through some challenges, I think is a step and I think also paying attention to your own health. When you sense a lot of anxiety and worry and stress, there's a phrase that says, anxiety is an informer. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to it. And I think that's a, that's a step in the right direction.
0: Yeah, this, uh, I was even thinking about this today, about overfunctioning, And it's so easy if you're real competent and really good at, at your job, which um, a lot of people are, obviously. Um, I have... In a student relationship, and this has happened to me, I can't tell you how many different times, especially since I do student council, I'll be expecting something out of a student to, like, to like lead or something along those lines, and, and I'm getting frustrated with this person, and I'm just like, what is going on? And it takes me a couple days, and then I realize I'm doing everything I want them to do. Like I never pass this on for them to do these things. So like really I can be mad at them or I can change my functioning, stop over functioning and ease off of that and then allow them to function higher. And and so it's like being able to understand what the heck's going on here because it's irritating. Uh because I don't want to work as much. You know, I mean it it's part of it is is recognizing what am I responsible for? Um, and we talked about this. I'm responsible to you, but not for you. Mm-hmm. And so that plays a part of it. But I mean, I've I've seen that over over and over again. Play play throughout um, doing when I'm at work of just mm-hmm. easing back and recognizing I'm doing too much.
1: Wait a second. Yeah. I'm mad at this person. Why am I mad at this person? Because I'm doing all their work. Mm-hmm. When we set those expectations and those standards, we very often look at them and we say what will happen if those don't get done like that becomes the milestone and we start driving that train Mm -hmm. without realizing it and I think this um this sort of framework of the difference between responsible for and responsible to is very important. Can we hit on that? I think it was you who introduced well, that. Well, no,
2: I mean, that's just – I borrow stuff from everybody else. But, yeah, I mean, thinking about those differences, that responsible to focuses on inputs and my res- where what my responsibility is to this particular initiative or whatever it is. But I'm not responsible for the outcome of what actually happens – that, because when we start worrying about being responsible for an outcome, that drives up our anxiety. We have that you mentioned that that chronic anxiety or the fear of what if, and then we tend to overfunction out of stress and out of worry, and then reciprocally, another underfunctions. And Ed Friedman in his book Failure of Nerve also says that stress is not from overwork. This is his view. But stress comes from worrying about other people's problems Mm -hmm. and thinking about, well, if I don't step in, then so-and-so might fail. And you addressed failing out of college, perhaps intervention there needed. But sometimes we have a difficult time in heightened anxiety of telling the difference between an actual emergency and a a veiled emergency of some kind.
0: Yeah. Um, well, thanks for helping us out with that. That end of um, the responsible two and four. Do uh, you have any other questions with that, Zach? Like-
1: um, when I when I think about that, uh, responsible four and responsible two. I uh, looking at you as student council facilitator leader right you're leading all these student Mm -hmm. advisor and the mother who's trying to teach her kid how to study i just think of we often feel we're responsible for success right Mm -hmm. making sure that success happens you're looking at those that counsel and you're saying succeed
0: well i i mean i used to tell myself when i started doing some counsel i I used to say i cannot fail Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean that was literally i was like we cannot fail i remember even telling students we can't fail
1: yeah, and so you're looking at that and you're thinking, I'm responsible for successes. I want my kid to succeed. I want these kids on this council to succeed. When in actuality, we have a responsibility to teach them how to function. Because the second that we're out of that equation, if we're the one facilitating everything, then it's going to fall apart. And that's sort of the crux of this over-functioning thing, right? The second you remove the over-functioner from the equation, it will restabilize. It will find a new equilibrium. But... It, it, there's going to be some sort of chaos, anxiety, and yeah. stability that is going to have
0: to be resolved. Most definitely. Um, well, with that, I think, well, John's got something. He's itching.
2: <laughs> I, I, I'm going to push back a little bit about that from some, a conversation I had last week with an individual about oh. the idea that we will not fail. And as I spoke with this person, they firmly believe in the group that they lead, that's what they tell their people. We will not fail and he said it marshals everybody together and they rally around and they say no matter what we are going to get this done and it's a rallying cry no oh. and hmm. so i'm wondering you know and so i was cuz i've thought that before that you know failure is not an option if you will so what am i willing to do to make sure we don't fail well i'm going to work 75 hours a week of course maybe yeah. that's not healthy yeah. but i'm thinking <laughs> a little bit about the idea so. of of lighting a fire underneath people to motivate them and people then say, yes, we're going to do this. Where do you see that versus over-functioning that we won't fail?
0: Yeah, for me, it just comes down to what does your one-on-ones look like with who you're working with? So, um, you know, who am I working with and how can I connect to them? How can I motivate different people? I think a, I think whenever you're trying to motivate people in a speech-like speech like type deal. If you don't know them real well, it could go really bad mm-hmm. because you're you're assuming everybody's the same and so that could be difficult. Now, if you hire all those people and you know that if you push this button that says we will not fail and they're going to rise up to that occasion, then yeah, by all means. Um yeah, the the, the not failing thing, you know, you even kind of insinuated this a little bit like I will work 70 hours a week. I think in some of that depends upon who you're working with. There's almost like, well, I'm going to cheat then to figure out. And we have seen this through businesses. Yeah. I mean, Enron and blah, 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 name them. I mean, they cheated to get to where they wanted to, probably because of the,
1: we cannot fail. The way I'm seeing this come out, though, is it comes down to what does it mean to fail and what does it mean to succeed? How is that defined? But from a systems perspective, what anxiety is tied to that? If you come from a family where failure is rewarded with punishment, the irony of that phrase, right, and the reward for success is a nod or something that just doesn't feel substantial, well, I don't know how that's going to motivate you, but that's going to be treated differently than, say, a corrective approach where failure is rewarded with guidance Mm -hmm. and success is rewarded in whatever way. I think that plays a lot into it as well. (laughs) How do you define failure and success? That's a big question. <laughs> I was like, is
0: that the next question? Um, I don't know if we have enough time on this podcast to move into that, but uh, super interesting for sure. Um, and we can we can dig into that uh, a little bit later. Speaking of digging into, um, next podcast, we actually had a little bit of response from some of our listeners, viewers, both. And so for our next podcast, we're actually gonna be looking into sabotage and how do you deal with people? Deal with anyway, it's kind of funny. I have to think about dealing with somebody. How do I function with somebody instead of deal with? Um who is sabotaging me? What does that look like? What do I do about that? And so that'll be the the next uh podcast that we are gonna be coming out with and but I think that's going to wrap us up here. Do we do a little shout outs here, sir? Yeah, let's
1: uh, give a shout-out, as always, to the Jesse Huffstetler, who is author of the Starfish Limiter, uh, some audio thingy that we use, um, in conjunction with our nice, fancy new system that oh, we're using to record this fantastic. crisp audio that you can listen to on iTunes, Google Play. On Google Play, uh, our hosting platform, Simplecast. There's a direct download link we place on the Facebook page because we don't have a website at this time. And if you're so visually inclined, you can see our pretty faces <laughs> on the YouTube, as we like to call it. Yeah.
0: You know what? Also, uh, to plug a little bit more, in next podcast, next week… Zach and I did a little something new. Um, it's actually Zach and Alex's movie reviews.
1: Zammer <laughs>
0: Better known <laughs> as zammer And we actually l- watched um, Hacksaw Ridge, which came out in 2016. Great movie. A Mel Gibson-directed movie.
1: Very overdone. Classic Mel.
0: And um, what we did is we watched it, reviewed it, but also... Because we are obsessed with leadership, we meshed in our leadership thoughts throughout as well. And so, we're showing
1: you what it looks like to view the world through this framework of systems. We are thinking systems.
0: Yeah. So that's also uh, something you look forward to as well. We, we plan to do some more reviews. Zach and I, <laughs> regardless if there was a video camera or we're recording anything, whenever we watch a movie, we talk ad nauseum afterwards. Uh, Way too afterwards. much. Afterwards. So, it, so anyways, we just thought it, it, it's just interesting. And so um, with that, uh, I am Alex.
1: I'm John. And I'm Zach.
0: And we'll see you next time.
1: Bye. Bye-bye.